Hi there. I'm Chloe Kent, reporter for Generics Bulletin, and you're listening to the Generics Bulletin podcast. Following the abolition of Roe v. Wade in the US, abortion is now illegal in roughly a third of the country, even though when it comes to medication abortion, the Food and Drug Administration judges both of the drugs used during the procedure, mifepristone and misoprostol, as safe and effective. Mifepristone, the first drug taken to induce an abortion, blocks the action of progesterone on the uterus and prevents further growth of the pregnancy. This is followed 24 to 48 hours later by misoprostol, which causes the uterus to contract and expel the pregnancy. The FDA approves the use of these drugs for up to 10 weeks gestation, and in 2020, medication abortion accounted for 54% of all abortions performed in the US. While misoprostol has a number of other applications outside of abortion, mifepristone is primarily used to terminate pregnancy. Now, GenBioPro, a company which manufactures a generic version of mifepristone, is challenging the constitutionality of restrictive abortion laws. The company has mounted a case in West Virginia alleging that its state-level ban of abortion, the Unborn Child Protection Act, is unconstitutional as it is preempted by the FDA's federal opinion that mifepristone is a safe and legal medication. It also maintains that the act violates the Commerce Clause of the US Constitution, which restricts states from burdening interstate commerce. On the same day that GenBioPro filed its West Virginia claim, a doctor in North Carolina named Amy Bryant filed a similar separate lawsuit challenging the state-imposed restrictions on mifepristone access, which she says have impeded her ability to treat her patients. Joining me on the podcast today is Greer Donnelly, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Pittsburgh Law School and Specialist in Reproductive Rights Law. Greer, thank you so much for finding the time to speak to me today. Um, And would you be happy to start off just by introducing yourself for us? Great. Yeah. So thanks for having me. Um, So I am an associate professor of law at the University of Pittsburgh Law School, and I work primarily um, on issues surrounding abortion and the law in the United States, um, and in particular, have do a lot of work with the Food and Drug Administration and its regulation of uh, medication abortion. What is it that GenBioPro are arguing in their West Virginia case? What is their legal strategy here? Yeah, so the case is based on um, a legal doctrine called preemption. So preemption is um, is based on the supremacy clause in the United States Constitution that states basically that when state and federal law conflict, um, federal law will win. It trumps state law. So preemption is the idea, um, right, that federal law is supreme and that it'll trump any conflicting state law. The hard thing often in preemption cases is determining whether or not there's a genuine conflict. Um, And so in a case like this, right, the part of it, the devil's in the details a little bit to try to figure out, well, is there a genuine conflict? Um, So GenBioPro is arguing that there is. um, And they are basing this on the idea that the Federal Food and Drug Administration, right, so federal law, um, has reviewed and approved and considered all the scientific data concerning medication abortion for 22 years, studied the data, and not only did the Food and Drug Administration approve um, the drug mifepristone, which is the first drug in the medication abortion regimen, but it has also very tightly regulated it. So unlike most drugs that are approved um, in the United States, where that FDA approval just allows any provider to prescribe the drug and any pharmacy to dispense it in general, um, 
the mifepristone has a particular type of regulation known as a REMS, which is a kind of extra regulation the FDA can impose on certain drugs um, that allows it to regulate the drug very closely. And so the question here, or, or what GenBioPro is arguing, is essentially that the FDA's regulation of mifepristone is not only the floor, in other words, states cannot you know, regulate below the FDA, but also the ceiling. So states cannot over-regulate mifepristone. When states like West Virginia have abortion bans that are um, so extensive that they essentially limit the sale or, or almost stop the sale and use of the drug in the whole state, um, that that is definitely an overregulation of mifepristone um, and that um, essentially the state cannot ban an FDA approved drug. So how does Jen Biopro's case compare to Amy Bryant's case in North Carolina? Because they operate on a fairly similar legal argument. Great. Yeah. So the um, the North Carolina case is brought by a different plaintiff. It's brought by an abortion provider in North Carolina. Um, so North Carolina doesn't have a general abortion ban in the way that West Virginia does. It actually um, just overregulates mifepristone. So um, especially before Dobbs, this these state laws were a little bit more um, they were more pervasive in the sense that many of the states that overregulate mifepristone now just ban abortion entirely. But there's still a handful of states out there, including North Carolina, that don't ban abortion but they still overregulate mifepristone and so or medication abortion. And so what do they do? Well, in North Carolina, they force patients to go in person to pick up um, a drug, even though the Food and Drug Administration has concluded that the safety and efficacy um, of the drug is the same um, when it's prescribed by telehealth and sent through the mail. Um, they have extra informed consent requirements. Um, they just basically make it much harder to obtain medication abortion than the FDA has said is necessary. And so the idea is similar here, right? The same in the same way, um, the abortion provider is basically arguing um, that the state, North Carolina, is overregulating this FDA-approved drug and creating a conflict between federal and state law, and federal law will trump. Um, but um, the you know impact is slightly different, right? Because if GenBioPro is is going to win the case in West Virginia, we'll have you know precedent that could theoretically be used throughout all of the states that ban abortion in this country, um, forcing them to essentially allow an exception for medication abortion used according to the FDA label. Um, so that's really um, could be quite significant, right? Because the vast majority of abortions in this country are, um, and, and in most countries are done in the first 10 weeks of pregnancy, which is when medication abortion is, um, is approved for use um, in the United States. And so if you have an exception for medication abortion within every state's general abortion ban, that's a it's a really important exception that will improve um, access for many people in this country um, nation, like in all the states that ban abortion. So with the North Carolina case, the scope's a little bit different because we're not talking about necessarily a precedent that could um, create, you know, a huge exception into state abortion bans. We're talking about, you know, marginal improvements on abortion access in states, um, purple states like North Carolina, Pennsylvania, um, which, again, are those states that um, have extra um, regulations and restrictions on medication abortion, but do not ban abortion entirely. Um, so the idea is very similar, uh, but the impact of the cases is different.
What could the potential implications be of the GenBioPro lawsuit, both if the company is successful in its endeavor and if it loses? So if the company is successful, um, it creates really, really compelling precedent um, that could be used in other states to suggest that states cannot ban medication abortion, right, and create this exception that is is very uh, potentially, you know, um, you know, a very big exception to state abortion bans in a really um, important way. So if they if they lose, then it's just the status quo is maintained, right? So it would it would suggest perhaps that um, states do have the ability uh, to ban abortion, even though the FDA has approved an abortion drug, um, and and that you know this is a legal theory that might not um, be successful at improving abortion access in this country. So um, with that said, of course, plaintiffs can choose to sue in another jurisdiction and see if they get um, a different ruling from a different judge. Some of these, the legal issue involved in this case is is fairly novel. It's um, there's some precedent out there that suggests it um, it has there's every reason to think it could be successful. But, you know, we have to wait and see what the courts are going to say. Um, so, of course, you know, the plaintiffs, if they lose in West Virginia, could choose to sue in another jurisdiction and see if a different judge or a different court would find differently, creating a circuit split or a, a, a court split that um, could potentially be used to get the Supreme Court to weigh in. Um, but, you know, um, in the short term, if if West Virginia wins, I'll just add, um, it would only impact West Virginia um, unless we, you know, get precedent at a higher level, um, either the circuit or the Supreme Court level or in other jurisdictions um, that would apply it more broadly to other states. So a win in West Virginia wouldn't necessarily mean that mifepristone is suddenly accessible all over the country again, as it was this time last year. Correct. Right. So it would it would be um, extremely important precedent that would potentially lead to that down the road. But in the short term, it would only impact West Virginia. And we'd have to, um, you know, either uh, either get an, a court higher up to reach the same conclusions or to file in other jurisdictions um, and, and, and have that holding uh, be replicated in other states. Um, so Jen Biofro filed a similar lawsuit in Mississippi in 2020, um, which they dropped shortly after the Roe v. Wade ruling. Um, could you give me some insight into why they made this decision? Why not push forward with that suit instead of filing a similar legal case in a different state? So um, I should stress that I don't have any insider information here. So everything I'm going to say is just based on kind of um, my own guesses. Um, but I will I would note that uh, that litigation in Mississippi, they drew um, a judge that was extremely slow. Um, so, um, you know, they were they were they had had their case filed, I think, for over a year, maybe even longer. And, and still there was no movement, um, no indication that they were going to get a decision um, anytime soon. Like, in other words, it was a very sluggish judge. Um, so that was, I think, potentially one thing that that impacted their decision. I also think that um, they 
you know, that case was filed before Dobbs came down, right? So the claims that they made in 2020 were actually much more similar to um, the North Carolina case uh, than they were to the case they just um, started in West Virginia, because, you know, of course, before Dobbs, no state was allowed to ban abortion entirely. And so they were suing in Mississippi, alleging that the laws there were overprotective and overregulating um, the stone. I think once Dobbs came down and, you know, totally shifted the landscape, um, even though Mississippi was one of the cases that ba- states that banned abortion entirely, I think that they, it just called for a reevaluation of whether or not that was the right jurisdiction and the right time um, and the right place to, to make their bigger lawsuit, their bigger claims that um, actually states cannot ban an FDA approved drug period. Um, and so, again, I don't have any insider information, but my guess is simply that they decided that um, the case could be more successful in a different jurisdiction and um, decided to move forward in that way. Um, and outside of um, Gen Biopro's case, there are also a few um, couple other cases right now that are trying to further challenge access to Mifepristone post row. Um, So several plaintiffs represented by the Alliance Defending Freedom um, have filed a suit against the FDA's very approval of Mifepristone, claiming that it improperly used an accelerated approval pathway to do so. Um, This approval pathway applies to drugs that treat serious or life-threatening illness, and the group is arguing that pregnancy is not an illness, nor is it serious or life-threatening. Meanwhile, an organization called Students for Life has filed a citizen petition um, requesting that the FDA modify the REMS for Mifepristone to require prescribers to include a medical waste bag and a catch kit with the drug to dispose of the abortion once the process is complete, arguing that flushing it down the toilet, which is what most people will do when having a medical abortion at home, poses an environmental hazard. Um, could we talk through these cases? How how strong are those arguments and what could their implications be for Mifepristone access? So the arguments are very weak, um, but that doesn't mean that we aren't very nervous about about them in in the states right now. So um, this in particular, the the litigation in Texas that you described um, was uh, brought by anti-abortion plaintiffs that um, essentially uh, filed in a jurisdiction with judges that they knew to be the only judges available they know, knew to be anti-abortion and fairly radical Trump appointees. So um, in other words, this is what in the United States we call forum shopping. Um, you can be in in a few instances quite sure of, of the of the judge that you're going to get in a way that's quite problematic. So um, so with this case in Texas, um, the claims are are fairly uh, meritless because the FDA has um, long interpreted uh, pregnancy to be a condition um, and regulated products that concern pregnancy. Um, and so um, it, even though pregnancy is not a disease, it is a condition. And um, it, this is not uncommon at all for the FDA um, to regulate products that uh, concern conditions. And of course, 
most people who've been pregnant recognize that pregnancy is a serious condition, right? That has a very serious potential um, uh, impacts, especially in, this, in the United States where we have a very bad maternal mortality um, uh, problem here. So uh, pregnancy uh, does and can cause things as serious as death, but often and for many people causes much um, potentially less serious, but very troubling um, other side effects and and risk. So in other words, claims are not very strong. And, um, you know, many people might be especially concerned at the idea that a judge with zero scientific training is going to come in and um, outweigh the FDA's expert judgment that this drug is safe and effective. It's worth noting that um, mifepristone is safer than drugs that are just on the market regularly here, like penicillin um, and Viagra, right? So the idea that that people need to be protected from this drug is actually a very, very weak claim. Um, so it might people might be concerned at the idea that a non-expert judge with zero scientific training is going to overrule an expert agency determination that this drug is safe and effective and necessary to treat a serious condition. Um, nevertheless, even though I believe the claims to be meritless, um, the judge that is going to rule on this is a is an ideologue that is very conservative and, um, you know, has historically rubber stamped many of the things that um, conservative um, litigants have brought before him. So that means that there is a real chance, a real possibility that he could say that the FDA must remove mifepristone from the market nationwide. And if that happens, then it'll have pretty serious consequences on abortion provision throughout the whole country, right? Not just in states that ban abortion, but everywhere. Um, and so that is certainly something that I think many people are worried about here. Um, and what about the uh, Students for Life citizen petition? Um, so that citizen petition is perhaps <laughs> even weaker, um, if you can imagine. So um, the idea here is is essentially that there's a potential environmental contamination issue with people who are having medical abortions and flushing um, the products of conception down the toilet. The problem here is that you know, up to 25% of pregnancies end in miscarriage, and most people who have miscarriages also have them over the toilet, right? Um, and so there's no reason to think that this there is any difference um, between a medical abortion and, one, and a natural miscarriage in terms of um, the environmental impact. The citizens' petition claims that there is one because in the case of a medical termination, um, the drugs, the mifepristone essentially is in um, the products of conception that go down the toilet. But again, the problem with that is that, well, that's true of every single drug that every person takes, right? Traces of the drug end up in people's waste, right? And their uh, pee and then their poop and it goes down the toilet and it can potentially um, impact um, the environment. So, you know, my brother is an environmental researcher and has commented on this previously and would be quick to say, you know, pharmaceutical um, byproducts in our waste is actually an environmental problem. But the fact that uh, anti-abortion groups are trying to, you know, exploit that and, you know, use it in this extremely exceptional way is is shocking because, 
you know, the, the FDA obviously doesn't require anybody to collect their own waste to ensure that it doesn't um, go into the environment. And so to do this with this one particular drug, when there's zero evidence that it actually is having a negative impact or that huge masses of people are taking it and um, influencing the environment in any way is pretty ridiculous. So the FDA has now formally updated its regulation of medication abortion to allow certified pharmacies to dispense abortion pills. Um, What more could the FDA be doing right now to try and safeguard mifepristone access? I saw an op-ed from you and two of your colleagues this morning um, criticising this recent update for still including pointless and harmful restrictions on access. So I'd be really interested to hear your take on this. When I started talking about the preemption theory, I I noted that the FDA not only approved methoprestone in 2000, but since that approval, it has actually imposed a REMS or an extra regulatory um, uh, mechanism to really closely regulate this drug. And so the thing is that that REMS is usually only, it's a tool Congress gave the FDA for particularly risky drugs, drugs that shouldn't, that can only be on the market safely when they have extra uh, limitations on their use. The medical community for at least five years now has been very united in its view that um, mifepristone is not is does not have the safety profile that would make a REMS at all uh, necessary. And so again, right, mifepristone is safer than Viagra and penicillin, two drugs that are on the market without any extra controls. Why are we uh, over-regulating this one drug when there's no evidence that it's unsafe or ineffective? And of course, the only answer anyone can come up with is abortion exceptionalism, right? This idea that the FDA is over-regulating uh, medication abortion because it is abortion. The pharmacy certification requirement is an improvement on the FDA's previous regulation of mifepristone, but it is still an extra burden under the REMS program that is not necessary for other drugs. In the U.S., if you um, if a drug is approved, typically like the state's uh, licensing board is going to give physicians and other providers the ability to prescribe it and and, uh, pharmacies the ability to dispense it. But what the FDA is doing here is saying only certain providers and only certain pharmacies can prescribe and dispense the drug. And so that is a problem um, because, um, you know, it means that pharmacies have to jump through these extra administrative hoops to be able to dispense this drug. And of course, um, you know, we're already seeing that there are boycotts and protest plans um, for that, you saw just yesterday there was news that a group of attorneys general in the United States got together to threaten um, Walgreens and CVS, two of the biggest pharmacy chains in the U.S., um, to say that this was illegal for them to dispense the drug. So um, all of a sudden, you know, what if the FDA had just allowed any pharmacy to dispense mifepristone, we would live in a world where, um, you know, pharmacies who just dispense it like any other drug without any sort of fanfare or proclamation. But now pharmacies are announcing if they are willing to dispense it. They're looking through their own processes to figure out what the administrative burdens are. They're having to deal with threats and boycotts and uh, potential lawsuits. And all of that could end up reaching a a point where pharmacies decide it's not worth it. And so, you know, as of right now, it does look like the big chains are going to try to seek certification, but, you know, well, I'll believe it when I see it, right? It hasn't actually happened yet. They're in the process of of evaluating what that's going to look like. um, And we're just going to have to kind of wait and see.
Could you see the issues around this case applying more widely to other genericized medical products? Could you foresee any risk to, say, oral contraceptives or other similar classes of products in the future? People are very worried about um, how how all of the kind of anti-abortion messaging and legislation that's going on right now could impact access to birth control. Um, in particular, because we know and from history in the United States that the anti-abortion movement is actually quite um, hostile to certain types of birth control, particularly um, emergency contraception like Plan B and IUDs. Um, and they have argued in the past in a case called Hobby Lobby that reached the Supreme Court that um, both of those types of, of um, birth control are actually abortifacients, right? They are actually abortions. In general, the, the Supreme Court has said previously in other cases that state legislatures um, get to decide facts when there is uncertainty. Um, and, you know, that can be quite concerning if you have a Supreme Court that is, which we do right now in this country, that is um, very committed to defending religious liberty um, at, at, at the expense of science at times, um, finding perhaps uh, potentially that well, if religious organizations think that these two types of birth control actually are abortions, whether or not that's true or not, um, that is the legislator's purview and, and 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 right to decide. And that, well, if you can ban abortion, why can't you ban those types of um, contraception? So um, certainly I think there is a lot of fear right now about um, how far uh, the anti-abortion movement wants to go. I do think However, in this moment um, where since Dobbs, there have been, I would say, a pretty clear showing in this country that the anti-abortion movement is kind of not acting um, in accordance with the majority of people's views on abortion here in this country, in particular with referendums um, that have happened in even conservative states affirming abortion rights, um, that I would I think that there's there would be very serious political consequences associated with anti-abortion legislatures trying to go further than they're already going, which is extremely far, um, and taking away people's access to certain types of birth control. And so, um, you know, uh, we will we'll just have to wait and see if they pursue that or not. So you have a toddler and you're currently expecting baby number two any day now. Um, congratulations, as a side note. Um, as both a parent and an expectant mother, what is the personal residence of the current reproductive rights conversation in the US to you? Yeah, I mean, I think I I I, I love this question, actually, because I think that there's this very strange narrative that exists in the abortion debate where, um, you know, we assume that people who, you know, fight for abortion rights uh, don't, you know, don't want to be parents. We assume that uh, people who have abortions um, are not already parents. Uh, but the truth is, th like, those things are actually not true, right? Um, abortion is is one of the ways in which people attain the parenthood that they want. Most people in the United States, at least, who have abortions are actually already mothers. Um, so, um, you know, I think that when we start talking about abortion, it is extremely salient to parents because, you know, once you've been pregnant and you've experienced pregnancy, you realize in a way that many people don't how intensely invasive and burdensome that process is, right? Um, 
for me, I'm pregnant right now, about to have a baby, uh, very desired, wanted pregnancy, but still, you know, every day I, I think, wow, I can't believe that people go through this constantly um, and just, you know, continue to live their lives when, you know, for months at the beginning, I suffered from very serious nausea and vomiting um, that made it really hard to work. Um, I've been exhausted for, for months on end, right? You have you have back pain, you have heartburn, every part of your body feels outside of your control. Um, you have just aches and pains and, you know, just an invasion on, you know, your body that is, is so significant. Um, and, you know, when you want a child, it is worth it. And I, I love my toddler more than anything. And I'm so excited to meet this new kid. But I think every day about how insane it is that we would force this onto someone who doesn't want the child. The Supreme Court really talked about, well, you can put your child up for adoption. That might be true, but you can't stop someone from experiencing months of very significant invasions on their bodily autonomy. So, so I think, you know, Parents have a really uh, particular understanding of what's at stake when we talk about abortion in a way that that many people don't. Um, it's only kind of made me more passionate about this. And, you know, not for nothing, I have a daughter at home and another on the way. and I care a lot about the rights I want them to have in the future. Um, so. So for me, uh, being a parent and and feeling deeply as if parenthood is probably the most important part of my whole life um, only makes me care about this issue more um, and fight for it harder, um, even though I think the stereotype is often the opposite. <laughs> ¶¶